the great tragedy here isn't death, but in not living life as God intends. Listen, you can't control how you die or when you die, but you can determine how you live. You better determine to live for the glory of God. This is All Things New with Pastor Barry E. Fields. Someone has said, flowing through the Bible from Genesis to Revelation on into our present day and into eternity is this scarlet thread. What we find is human beings try as they might to make the world into a better place, try to atone for their sins, try to hope that their good outweighs their bad. But we find that we can't overcome our sin nature. And so God in His mercy and His grace and His infinite and matchless wisdom promotes a scarlet thread that ends in Christ so that anyone who would repent and believe might have life. And so we see this played out in a number of different roles. We have prophets, those who declare the word of the Lord, often to a generation that will not hear it at the time. You have priests, those who intercede on behalf of the Lord. You think of those who would walk into the tabernacle, later the temple, on the day of atonement and other times of the year, showing that without the shedding of blood, there would be no forgiveness of sin and pointing to a day when Christ himself would be the anchor, would be the sacrifice. You have prophets, you have priests, and then you have kings those who dwelled in the temporal earthly realm of executing God's justice and righteousness. You have good kings, you have bad kings, you have in-between kings. Sometimes you have kings who are both good and bad, but it's pointing us to something that there's only one person who is the perfect prophet, who is the perfect priest, and who is the perfect king. And his name is Jesus. He's the one that we worship. He's the one that we serve today. This is David's lament at the end of Saul's life. And rather than asking the Lord to take his sand, Saul had thrown his life away. He'd started out well, but he hadn't ended well. And you know something that is true for us, no matter how well you start, how you finish will always be what's remembered of you. And the temptation is to come into a place like this, to sit in here week after week, month after month, year after year, and just think, because of something I did a long time ago, Because I once served the Lord. Because I once had the joy of the Lord. That means that I'll end well. That means that things will be okay. And I would just submit to you, brothers and sisters, that there are multitudes of people who thought the same thing throughout thousands of years. Who did not end well. And the challenge for us today is to live for the glory of God. Look at 2 Samuel Chapter 1, beginning in verse 17, David has found out about the death of Saul. This is what he says. David lamented with this lamentation over Saul and Jonathan, his son. And he said it should be taught to the people of Judah. Behold, it is written in the book of Jashar. He said, your glory, O Israel, is slain on your high places. How the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath, publish it not in the streets of Ashkelon, lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice lest the daughters of the uncircumcised exult. You mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew or rain upon you, nor fields of offerings. For there the shield of the mighty was defiled, the shield of Saul, not anointed with oil. From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan turned not back, and the sword of Saul returned not empty. Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely, in life and in death, they were not divided, They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. 
You daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothes you luxuriously in scarlet, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of the battle. Jonathan lies slain on your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. How the mighty have fallen and the weapons of war perished. Father, I pray this morning that you would open to us your word and the hearts of your people so that we would leave this place determined to end well. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Past couple of weeks, I've been immersed in some family history. Um, my mom and dad are originally from Bardstown, Kentucky. Our families on both sides are from that area. My grandmother on my mother's side uh, passed away just a couple of weeks ago, so was there for a couple of days. And I don't know how many of you have, uh, have been to Bardstown. I would guess there's a good number of you have. But it was just recently voted within the last couple of years as the most beautiful small town in America. And it is a pretty place if uh, you have been there. Part of the reason that it has the beauty that it does is because there are more city regulations there than there are laws in Leviticus. Try leaving something on the street corner. Try putting up a sign that doesn't meet up with the city ordinances and you will find yourself in a world of trouble. But the result is beauty. So my old Kentucky home is there. Shops, restaurants, other things are, are all along the way. And if you go to St. Joseph's Proto-Cathedral, which is the, the large Catholic church there, which at one time was the second largest domed building in the country, surpassed only by the U.S. Capitol, was once the base of operations for the Catholic church in Kentucky. There in 1959, my grandparents on my father's side were married in that church. A few years ago, I, I went there for a service. Sometimes I'll go and I'll sneak in the back and I'll leave before they participate in, in the Eucharist because the way they participate and the way we participate are a little bit different. But on that particular day, I was having a, a difficult time with some things in ministry at a previous church. And I walked in and there was a, a girls ensemble seeking that morning, uh, singing that morning, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And I just remember being blessed by that. And I remember thinking in that moment, my grandparents, who were both passed away at the time, my grandmother's life, my father's side, which was tragically cut short early, never met her. Grandfather on a father's side who'd passed away of, of, of cancer, like many of you have dealt with. I just wondered how it started with the hopes and the dreams compared with how it ended. You go outside Bardstown, Kentucky, out on the outskirts of Nelson County, and you will run into the New Salem Baptist Church, which is where my parents met and attended. Grandparents on both sides also uh, went to, to that church, my grandfather's side, on my dad's side later in life, mom's side for most of their lives. In fact, it's also the place where my parents were married in uh, August of 81. My pastor who passed away drove up to to preach that, that wedding, officiate at it. And I've got a, a photo of him with my great-grandmother and uh, my aunt and uncle all together. He's got his arm around them in 81. You can go to the cemeteries on either side of this church. They've got two cemeteries. They've got the old cemetery and the new cemetery. Some of them going back 200-plus years. Family members buried right and left there in this place. Beautiful area. And I often go back and I think of, being, of the vitality of life, of youth, 
of the hopes and dreams that you place in a person. Maybe the hopes and dreams when, when you got married, when you saw your kids get married, or when your grandkids were born. We often place these hopes and dreams on people for what we hope will have happened in their life. We hope that they'll be successful. We hope that they'll do well. But then often what happens is the realities of life set in, difficulties, trials, times sin always takes its toll. And what the expectations were and what the reality ended up being are often miles apart. They say that in 1991, a 300-foot-tall redwood tree fell to the ground in California. It was 17 feet in diameter, 53 feet in circumference, as tall as a 30-story building, was estimated to have been about 2,000 years old. They say it sounded from a mile away like a train crash, and from 10 miles away, you could feel the vibrations. And I'm telling you, for ancient Israel, when Saul passes away, the ground may not have shook physically, but spiritually, it was like the world was coming apart. Because they had placed all of their hopes, all of their dreams in this man who would be the king of Israel, in this man whom God had anointed, who had started out well as a humble leader, as one who would do the will of God for his people. They had hopes and dreams in him. But somewhere along the way, Saul stopped listening to the voice of the Lord, and he started listening to the voices inside his head to where it did not end well for him. You can see this happening from a mile away. There he is, making the sacrifice, not waiting for Samuel to show up. There he is, not taking out the Amalekites as God had told him to do, thinking that he knew better. And now, in the previous chapters, here he is pursuing David after he flees to Gath, after he's told him twice that he will leave him alone because David's had opportunity to kill him. He's granted mercy to him. Saul says, thank you, David. And then now comes at him for a third time. And rather than consulting the voice of the Lord, he consults the medium, the witch at Endor in 1 Samuel 28. He tries to call Samuel back from the dead. And you just wonder what in the world has happened in this man's life to go from being God's anointed to God's disappointed. And if you think this only happens in ancient history, may I remind you to look around at the number of pastors and ministry leaders who have fallen just within the last six months. And if you think it won't happen to you, I promise you. It can and it will. Jonathan's made this covenant with David. He's David's best friend. He's Saul's son. Can you imagine being in his position? On the one hand, he's trying to honor his father who wants him to be the king. On the other hand, his best friend David has been told by the Lord that he would one day be the king. And so Jonathan makes this covenant with David. He says, I will protect you. And he asks the same thing. He says of David, will you protect me when Saul's kingdom is no more? Because you know the tradition, when one house overtakes another house, and it is not a peaceful transition, you know what happens to the former king's kids? They live no more. And Jonathan says to David, you swear to me, you make a covenant with me, a covenant based on that hesed love, that never-ending love, that you will not take my kids out. He says, Jonathan, I swear it to you. Later off, that's going to play on really well, and each story comes out of that. But here they are, 
being chased by the Philistine army. And it's not good. They've been routed. They're, they're moving across the valley of Jezreel. Saul has been wounded, and the Philistines have decided they're going to try to end the battle early. They've been fighting with Saul for 40 years. He has been a hex in their community, and now they see an opportunity to take him out. So they go specifically after him. And as they are pursuing Saul, they say your life sometimes will flash before your eyes at the end. As they are pursuing Saul, I wonder what thoughts must have flashed through his mind of what might have been. Maybe he remembered that day when no one else would put faith in David, but Saul did. He sent him out to battle to slay Goliath. Maybe he remembered David coming in and playing that harp and calming him. Maybe he remembered the days when they would celebrate the victories of Saul. And Saul would say, I am doing my best to follow the Lord. But all that's gone. Saul knows that the end is coming. He doesn't want to fall into enemy hands. He knows what the Philistines do with their wounded. And so he asks his armor bearer sitting next to him, he says, kill me, take me out. The armor bearer refuses. He says, I won't touch the Lord's anointed. That will go on me. Saul says, well, we'll hold on my sword, put it in position. Saul falls on his own sword. And this armor bearer, who as far as we know is not wounded or injured in the same manner as Saul is, does the same thing. It's a tragedy. The Bible tells us that all of Saul's, one, all of Saul's sons, including Jonathan, except one, are killed. And apparently it was a bad route because the Israelites who are left don't get Saul's body or the body of his sons. The Philistines come on it the next day. They see him there. They take off his head and they tie his body to a wall, a place called Beth Shan. They throw a parade for all to see. It would have been a well-traveled route. The whole point was this is what happened to the king of Israel. They took the armor once reserved for the king who the Lord had appointed and they put it in their own temple, basically saying our God is greater than your God. And the great tragedy for all of this isn't simply that Saul dies, it's that he doesn't die well. He's not prepared to die. You know, he he looks like a king. He's got the build for it. There are times when he acts like a king, but and the tragedy is if he will just repent, if he will just stop turning from the Lord and start turning to the Lord. He can't undo the past, but he can reclaim the future right here. But he's so consumed with jealousy and wrath and bitterness and revenge, all of which leads to a murderer's heart. The great tragedy here isn't death, but in not living life as God intends. Listen, you can't control how you die or when you die, but you can determine how you live. You better determine to live for the glory of God. A lot of times people look at church discipline in this kind of negative life. They say, why are you going after someone who sinned? We're all sinned. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Yes, we have. It's often perceived as angry, but the truth is, if you can speak the truth in love to someone, to keep them from falling away. See, what you see is the public nature of it. You see... 
what looks like judgmentalism. You see what looks like anger and targeting. What you don't see is behind the scenes the pastoral burden of saying, if they don't repent of this sin, God will hold it against them. You see the public nature, you don't see the private agony. And the question isn't, brother and sister, can't we, can we show you up? The question is, brother and sister, won't you turn? Won't you come back? You're so distracted by the things of the world, you determined to get your kid a good college education when you need to be more concerned about making sure your kid loves the Lord because that'll go a lot further than anything else that you do. You spend all this time trying to get your kids set financially, set them up to where they have what they want, but you don't teach them how to love God. You don't teach them how to prioritize His Word. You say, well, I'll take God's Word, I'll take the Bible if and when it fits my schedule, but if I don't like what it has to say about sexual ethics, if I don't like what it has to say about greed, I'll just ignore that part. Church can't come after me. They're not the police. No, but we serve the judge. Here's the thing about Saul's sin. It affects all of Israel. That may be the greatest lie that Satan will tell you is he will say, your sin doesn't hurt anyone else. Especially if no one else can see it. This is only affecting me. And what you don't realize is not only is it harming you, but it is harming everyone around you. It is infectious. It is contagious. The persistent sin of one person impacts us all. David knows this of Saul. He hears this message. He receives this news not from someone who's in his own army, but from someone else who he had been fighting from the day before. And he hears it, and the way that he reacts is in mourning because not only is his king gone, but his best friend is gone too. And I want you to see this. David doesn't rejoice over the death of his enemy. There's no joy in it for him. This means that David's going to be the king of Israel. This means his time has come. You know, it's okay to celebrate a victory, but you should not rejoice in your enemy's defeat. David doesn't do that. We look in this culture today, and I think we have a lot of difficulty over how to grieve over fallen heroes. We live in a society that desires to build people up, tear them back down. And there, there's no in-between. We want gray with our ethics. We want gray with our own lives. But man, when it comes to judging people in society and culture, it's black and white. One wrong thing, and you're done. Everybody's a victim. And certainly there are some true victims, but the Bible tells us that our problem isn't in being a victim. Our problem is that we're all culprits. Our problem is that we're all complicit in sin. And unless we repent, it will go the way of us as it goes with Saul. But I want you to notice, even though David knows this history, even though David has had a spear thrown at him twice by Saul, even though he's got, of all people in the world, the reality of taking him out, that's not what he does. The men of Jabesh, the Jabeth, come after Saul. 
They see what's happened. They're about 15 miles from Beth Shan. In the middle of the night, they go at great risk to themselves and they retrieve their king's body and they give it proper burial because they remember that a number of years ago, Saul had come to their aid too. David seeks to honor Saul's life in spite of what he's done. People are not easy to put in a box. People are not always easy to categorize. They can't fit the places that we try to put them. And here's Saul having committed this great evil, and yet David is mourning over his life. He says, how the mighty have fallen. He mourns over the friend that he once had. But I want you to see, David is not someone who grieves without hope because you can contrast Saul's death with David's death. And as David lays dying, we talked about a couple of weeks ago, as David lays dying, as he is shivering in the cold, as he can't get any heat in spite of himself, he is able to say that the Lord is good. And even facing death, he is left with hope. Now, David isn't perfect. He's committed grievous sins too. But the difference between Saul and David is that David repents. David listens. David turns to the Lord instead of from the Lord. And that's the reality of the believer that though our outer man is perishing, our inner man is being renewed day by day by day. I preached a lot of funerals. You know what people often say if they don't really have anything good to say about a person? Now, sometimes they do. It isn't always this way. You know what they'll say? He or she loved to have a good time. And they'll leave it at that. And usually, love to have a good time means exactly what you think it means. Are we just here to have a good time? We here... Be as Frank Sinatra says, just to do it our way for the sake of doing it our way. What are you leaving behind? You know what keeps me up at night? It's all these faithful men and women of God that I'm surrounded by who are falling right and left. And I can't help but think it might happen to me one day. It might happen to you. You can put a lot of things in an obituary these days. You can put whatever you want. You can be a builder. You can be a business owner. You can be a supervisor. You can be a Hall of Famer. You can time those out how long they take to read out loud. Just a few seconds apiece. But if you put man of God, woman of God, that echoes out into eternity never grows old. See, here's the thing. You are not guaranteed how or when you die. But even if your death isn't a storybook ending, your godly legacy can be. (laughs) Say, they served the Lord. They loved Him. Because the one we look to is another king who is overtaken by his pursuers, only they didn't fasten his body to a wall. They took it to a tree. Rather than turning away from the Father, 
who he had known all of his life, he said, rather, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And he says to his followers, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever lives and believes in me shall never die. There are lots of people who will make an entrance and who will leave a mark. But he that doeth the will of God abides forever. She who doeth the will of God abides forever. And I would just encourage you, rather than living in the moment, in the temporary circumstances where you're you're jaded about what's going on, or you're bitter, or you're discouraged, or wherever you are, don't simply live for the moment, but live in light of eternity and ask yourself, how do I want to be remembered? How do I want to stand before God? And when you will stop living in the here and now circumstantially, and you will start living for all of eternity, what's really important? That's what counts. Because there's only so much information you can fit on that tombstone. There'll be a death date, there'll be a birth date, and in between there'll be a dash. And in that dash is everything. Tis only one life, it will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Hey guys, thanks so much for listening to the broadcast. If you found it helpful, please consider sharing it with your family and friends. For more information, check us out online at barryefields.com.